With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Okay, just to level set in case some crazy news comes out between now and the time this is released, I'm recording this um, late morning on Thursday, uh, February 29th, uh, the bastard child of... uh, Julius Caesar, because today is Leap Day. I'm going to go see Dune in in a little bit. I want to get this done beforehand. So what to talk about? <sighs> CNN has used me a lot this week, and I shouldn't really complain about that. Um, I should turn on Do Not Disturb, though, because otherwise these dings are going to get really annoying. Um case in point. And so it's been a lot of punditry this week, a lot of punditry about some things. I don't know if they're interesting or not, but I I didn't get to do punditry about like some of the big things this week because they happened when I wasn't on CNN. So for instance, Mitch McConnell uh, has announced that he is going to not run again for majority or minority leader, but he is going to stay on in the Senate and he is going to stay on as minority leader until November. And I got to say, I just think that this is one of these. Oh, and one of the reasons I can do punditry uh, today is because the Dispatch podcast is going to be all about legal stuff. We're going to get Mike Warren and Sarah on and who do the newsletter, The the Collision, and just do an explainer, getting people up to speed. So the normal Dispatch roundtable isn't going to be punditry. So normally I try to hold off on a lot of punditry on the solo because I don't want to just repeat myself on two podcasts in a row on, on the assumption that there's a Venn diagram with some overlap between listeners of this and listeners of the dispatch podcast. But I am, I am free to um, indulge rank punditry because I did no bearing punditry this week. We had two great podcasts this week, but they had nothing to do with uh, generic punditry stuff. And we can talk about some of that in a little bit. Again, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm really woolly headed for some reason. Um, does anyone else smell burnt hair? Funny story. I was upstairs last night. Uh, I'm sorry. Funny story. I was upstairs 15 minutes ago. <laughs> Jeez, I'm, I'm really out of it. I swear I haven't started day drinking yet. And my wife, uh, the fair Jessica was sitting on the couch. I was sitting on the big chair in the kitchen as is my want with my dingo. And that's not a euphemism. My wife blurted out while reading, I guess the New York post, the New York times, Transnistria. If this whole thing goes south, that's where it's going to be. It's going to be because of that. And I was like, yeah, you know, so if, if you don't know, Transnistria is this, this region of Moldova. It's very Russian speaking. They want to like play footsie with Russia and come back to Russia or something like that. And 
Um, and of course, Russia has been fomenting this stuff for a while. Russia's practices a kind of linguistic nationalism that says anywhere there are Russian speakers, they are sort of de facto Russians, which is garbage, but it is what it is. And, um, and then I said something along the lines, yeah, it's like the Schleswig-Holstein of the 21st century. And she chuckled and I was like, and I started to say, you know, the Schleswig-Holstein Senate is one of the most impenetrable foreign policy things of the 19th century. And, and she was like, yeah, okay. And I was like, well, what? And she's like, yeah, you lost me at impenetrable. And she didn't want me to like explain any further about how impenetrable it was. And to be clear, I am not an expert on Schleswig Holstein. Um, I think Mike Duncan in the Revolutions podcast had said something along the lines. I can't remember who it was. Was it? It wasn't Talleyrand, but it was one of those guys had said that, you know, there are only three people who understood the issue in all of Europe. And uh, so I'm not going to do a big thing on it. But basically, it was in the age of, you know, nationalism and, and, and self-determination and all that kind of stuff. And the problem with Schleswig-Holstein, it was a kind of like this dual Danish-German thing for so long that it was part of its nature to be this dual Danish-German thing. And it was kind of like, you know... The mid, 18, the mid 1800s was kind of like this game of musical chairs where when the music stopped, peoples in various regions had to like race to the specific nation state that had control of a specific chair or they were going to get left caught in the weeds. Anyway, I just thought it was funny that she just was like preemptively didn't have, had, had already heard enough from me on the subject, which I think is probably true of many of you out there. Oh, but I was talking about Mitch McConnell um, and Bern Hare. So I think McConnell, it's one of these, like, is the dress white or blue or gold or blue kind of things. Remember that there was that thing a few years ago about being able to, some people saw it as a white and gold dress and some people saw it as a blue and whatever dress, whatever it was. It's a Rorschach test. It's one of these incredibly sort of clarifying questions that sort of tells you where you come down on a lot, not by no means all, but a lot of the ridiculousness in Washington on the right in the last 10 years is what you think of Mitch McConnell. Now, I by no means think Mitch McConnell is perfect. Um, I've had disagreements with Mitch McConnell over the last years uh, at National Review. He could drive us crazy sometimes. And he's by no means immune from, from criticism. That said, I've always had a soft spot for Mitch McConnell because he's a grown-up. And yes, again, he's gotten things wrong. He handled impeachment, uh, the second impeachment of Donald Trump, disastrously, in my opinion. And I, I suspect that if you got him off camera in private, he would say something to that effect. I don't know that. Sometimes when I talk about what I think politicians know, it's because I actually know what they know, but I have to phrase it in the kind of like a ambiguous, my best guess kind of thing. But this is one of these cases where I, I you know, I've had plenty of conversations with Mitch McConnell over, over the years, but you know, he's a very tight lipped dude. So I, I, I don't know what's in his heart about his role in screwing up the second impeachment, but I suspect he realizes he screwed it up and wishes he had played it differently. That said, Mitch McConnell is a serious person. He understands politics as the art of the possible. He understands that the first thing you have to do is win a majority to be able to do anything that you want. He is a master of the rules and procedures of the Senate. He never wanted to be president. He's one of the last people, I think, to go to the Senate 
and say, this is where I want to be. He's an institutionalist. The people on the right who hate him, I mean, really hate him. I mean, like, I don't know if you saw the House Freedom Caucus statement, which was so asinine and so juvenile and so embarrassing. I mean, was this all this nonsense about how he was a, he was a, Democrat. He was a co-democratic head of the Democratic Party in the Senate. And, and they put D Ukraine in his identifier. And whatever man-child goober runs the House Freedom Caucus social media uh, accounts, you really should, you know, be wary in the future about putting that on your resume because it's just, it's such a sign of what a Kool-Aid drinking, ridiculous, parodic institution the House Freedom Caucus has become in terms of its public facing aspects when it does things like that. Anyway, McConnell, if you're a conservative, a traditional conservative, and frankly, if you are, I forget a traditional conservative, if you're a Trumpian conservative who wants to brag about Donald Trump's accomplishments as president of the United States while simultaneously denouncing Mitch McConnell as a cuck loser rhino, you're just making a fool of yourself because Mitch McConnell is the author or co-author of nearly all of Donald Trump's major accomplishments, certainly all of his major legislative accomplishments and his judicial appointment accomplishments all have Mitch McConnell to thank for it. And you can't simultaneously talk about how great it was that Trump put three conservatives on the Supreme Court and say that Mitch McConnell was was an obvious liberal squish Democrat. It just, it makes you look like an idiot. Or at the very least, it makes you look like you are a water-carrying press agent for Donald Trump and you don't actually care about being a serious person. And so you get this weird disconnect where Democrats despise Mitch McConnell for being an incredibly effective and accomplished Republican leader. And the boob bait chorus of the House Freedom Caucus types and the Josh Hawley type hate him for being some sort of liberal squish because in their mind, there was this alternative to Mitch McConnell who would have delivered victory upon victory in every regard. And it's, a, you know, I've talked a lot here about this loser caucus, loser culture thing on the right where, again, typified by the House Freedom Caucus types and not all of them. I don't think Chip Roy is as bad as some of these other guys, but these guys who work from the assumption that there is some platonic ideal of policy and legislation that could be accomplished if only men of will and strength were in charge. And so any compromise isn't the result of dealing with political reality. It's the result of, of collaboration with the enemy or lack of intestinal fortitude. And that worldview is at the heart of a vast amount of the Mitch McConnell criticism, because the thing that Mitch McConnell did was deal with reality. Now, you can not like the things that he did while dealing with reality. And if you're a liberal or progressive or a Democrat, I certainly get that. I can understand some of the conservative, you know, the sort of you know, rank and file, hyperpartisan Republican complaints. But this idea that somehow... If you just had Ted Cruz 
um, or Josh Hawley or, or, you know, the latest iteration of Mike Lee in charge of the Republican caucus in the Senate, it would just be victory after victory after victory, is fan fiction. It's a lie that is peddled to people on talk radio and on cable TV. It is a, it is a deceitful, misleading, <laughs> misinformational, to the extent that's a word, approach to politics that has been going on at least since the government shutdown of, tw- of 2013, if not sort of the, since the beginning of the sort of fight against Obamacare. You know, you used to have Ted Cruz and Mike Lee and these guys going around saying, this is 10 years ago now, 12 years ago now, saying that you only needed 40 senators, 40 senators of conviction to repeal Obamacare. And that's just a lie. It's just not true. You need 60 to get over the filibuster. But time and time again, the the way Republican politics was framed and continues to be framed by these guys is that this is a, this has nothing to do with math and everything to do with willpower. And that's a dangerous form of argument. It's a stupid form of argument, but a lot of stupid things are also dangerous things. And it's it's an impediment to any kind of actual progress because it is the living, breathing heart of the spirit of making the perfect the enemy of the good. And that's why you have the, you know, the, the Republican Freedom Caucus guys preferring to lose than win. Because when you lose, you can say you lost on principle, you died on a hill, you refused to, you know, compromise your core beliefs. But to actually get legislative wins, you actually have to acknowledge that Democrats aren't an existential, implacable, um, uniform and monolithic, demonic enemy, but actual human beings with whom you can work if you try. And it becomes tautological, right? It's like, if you work out a bipartisan agreement of any kind, that is proof you got taken because anything Democrats would agree to must be evil. So therefore, you have compromised with evil. You've collaborated with evil. Better not to do anything with the enemy and not get primaried and not get attacked by Donald Trump um, and not get, you know, vilified by, you know, Steve Bannon types. And it's a paralyzing, you know, I got Dune on my mind. It's, you know, it's the gum jabbar of politics. Fear is the mind killer. People stop thinking rationally when they buy into these constructs. So anyway, Mitch McConnell, I will always be a partial defender of the guy because he actually took the institution seriously. He made wrong calculations from time to time, but he actually wanted to do things that traditional, normal conservatives wanted to do, but also people who actually understood politics wanted to do, like get the most electable Republican elected in the state that he is running in. You know, there's this, it's amazing, the horseshoe theory, synergy, convergence on this kind of stuff. Um, I'm sure I've talked about it before, but I I remember writing about, because I thought it was just so unbelievably funny, how a bunch of sort of uh, squad AOC uh, related PACs and interest groups were launched, launched this thing a few years ago to get an AOC, you know, an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez style senator from West Virginia. And they wanted to find a real progressive to challenge 
uh, Joe Manchin in West Virginia as if this was possible. Now, I have no idea because I don't follow that stuff very closely if these people were lying grifters who knew it was impossible and just wanted to raise money for some, you know, AOC-aligned pack, or if they actually believed it was possible that you could get a sort of Green New Deal-type, squad-type senator uh, from West Virginia to beat Joe Manchin, the last statewide Democrat in that state, for probably the rest of my life. You know, so I don't know if they were if they were lying or if they were, you know, Kool-Aid drinking in the bubble idiots. But that mindset is all over the place on the right, too, where you think that all you have to do is get the most pure, most committed MAGA or right wing or Christian nationalist or election denying or Trumpist, whatever it is, the most hardcore, uncompromising Republican possible to get the nomination. And then you'll just win because Republicans should win. And McConnell heaped nothing but scorn and disdain on that nonsense because the fact is that in a lot of states, even red states, really scary, stupid, idiotic, Bannonite candidates will lose. And so you're handing Democrats a seat that is winnable for Republicans. And the people who hated McConnell for that approach are celebrating today, which is a real bad sign for the future of the GOP. And I don't mean this in terms of, oh, we're going to lose the GOP as a conservative party or any of that kind of stuff. I just mean as an analytical thing, the decline of McConnellism and the rise of Vanceism or Hollyism in the, in, the, in the GOP is guaranteed to cost winnable seats for the GOP. It is amazing to me, again, you know, I'm not going to do the full weak parties thing, if parties only did what they're supposed to do, right, which is pursue their partisan self-interest, um, the country would be so much better off. If the party just took seriously this idea that it can't accomplish the things it claims it wants to accomplish without having workable majorities in the House and the Senate, its whole orientation to elections would be different because, again, it would put in, it would support the most electable uh, the most conservative electable in Massachusetts, which would be a much more liberal sort of Scott Brown style candidate than, you know, the most electable conservative in Texas or in Wyoming. And, you know, people keep rolling their eyes at me when I say the GOP needs more rhino squishes, but it does if you want it to be a majority party. Similarly, the Democratic Party needs a lot more moderate and conservative Democrats if it wants to be a majority party. And, you know, it's weird how this goes in waves. The Democratic Party wanted in the mid 2000s, in the early 2000, you know, the, in the 2004, 2008 cycle, it got really worked up with this concept of fighting Dems. And Rahm Emanuel was really smart about going and finding candidates in various states around the country that had a chance of winning as Democrats. And if that made the, meant that they had to be more socially conservative than, you know, he was, he was fine with that. If it meant they had to be more sort of pro-law enforcement or have military records or more pro, you know, whatever, it didn't really matter. It was like, as long as they were basically Democrats, if they were ideologically heterodox from the sort of 
you know, East Coast, California worldview, that was fine if it got them elected, because the way you actually have power in legislatures is by having majorities and majorities are going to have diverse coalitions in them. That's why they become majorities. Minority coalitions can have can afford purity just again and again and again. It is amazing how the parties forget this. And the supposed people, the people who supposedly want to get the most done, whether it's on the far left or the far right and have the most ambitious agenda, are the least willing to accept the price of gaining political power, which is acquiescing to a coalition that is less committed to your 100% position on everything than you are. It used to be that the parties were the ones who explained this to the hotheads and said, hey, look, you can't get the full loaf, but if the other side gets a majority, you're not going to get a loaf at all. So let's get a majority in here and you'll get half a loaf or two thirds of a loaf and you'll get a down payment towards the rest of the loaf down the road because the audiences, the primary, the primary electorate, the Fox News audience, the talk radio audience, the Newsmax audience doesn't want to hear any of this stuff. Um, these guys act as if this reality has gone away and it just hasn't. All right, enough with the, sorry, autopilot cephalogy. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. More real punditry. So I kind of think... People are missing some of the significance of the Michigan results. And that may only be because I was forced to pay attention to Michigan because I did three hours on Tuesday night from the D.C. Bureau about the Michigan results. And so it forced me to it focused my mind on the Michigan stuff. So first of all, um, let's let's do this uncommitted thing. Um, it had a good turnout. It's worth pointing out, and I have to say, you know, kudos to Tapper and those guys. They pointed it out a lot that the initial goal of the I should back up and I should be a little explanatory, though, maybe not full pud or Etzian opponents of the Israel war and our support for Israel, America's support for Israel, organized the thing saying, you know, uh, Rashida Tlaib, you know, pushed it. Her sister was the uh, the organizer of it to a large extent pushed this idea that in the Democratic primary, people should vote uncommitted in order to register their dissent from Biden's policies on Israel. Now, the thing, the first thing to keep in mind, because it's going to be important in a second, is that Michigan, I don't know if it's unique, 
but not every state does this. Michigan always has this uncommitted line on its ballots for both the Republican and Democratic primaries. Most states do not have this. Most states have just, you know, you you can always have a line for write in a candidate, but it doesn't have this special box that you can check saying uncommitted. And so in a normal, in the past, you know, however many, half dozen primaries, in a normal primary, about 20,000 people, in a, in a relevant comparable primary, you know, about 20,000 people will, will check the uncommitted thing. Like with Barack Obama one year, it was because he wasn't on the ballot. So this was a way to sort of signal that you were for Obama. And there've been, you know, other examples like that. And so it's worth just pointing out that the organizers of this, as organizers of this thing set the bar, tried to set expectations really low. They said if they could get 10,000 people to do it, that would be a huge success. And they got, I don't have the number in front of me, but um, 100,000 people or so. It was like 13% of the electorate. If I have that number wrong, I apologize, but it's something like that. And that's a good number. It's an impressive number. Biden still got 80% of the vote, of the Democratic vote in the primary. Dean Phillips was a rounding error, was a rounding error. Marianne Williamson was a slightly larger rounding error, which is why she's now she's getting back into the race. Okay, whatever. This will change none of our lives. The thing is, is that that's really just not that, but it, it's, it's a good number for their, even accounting for their attempt to sort of pre-spin things by saying 10,000 would be good. It's still a good number. And the number out of Dearborn, which I think was about 50%, um, initially was reported way too high as like 75%, and then it got clawed down. And Dearborn is the most, it's like an Arab or Muslim majority city in, in Michigan. This idea that somehow this is this major sign of discontent for um, Biden's Israel policies, I just don't, I don't really feel it. I don't find it very persuasive. I think, you know, the bigger threat to Biden is with young voters who have young, very progressive voters who I think are confused and wrong about the Israel stuff. But you know, to the extent, so like, let's say in Michigan, half of the uncommitted vote, and that's just a number I'm picking out of the air, uh, half of the uncommitted vote was from Arab or Muslim Americans. So now you're talking about what, six and a half percent of the electorate. Eh, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to dismiss their anger and rage. A lot of these people, you know, again, I disagree with them about Israel on, on broad policy stuff and all that. You know, these people have family. There are a lot of Palestinians in Michigan who have family who have been, you know, displaced, who have been killed. And it's a human thing to, you know, be passionate about that. I'm not trying to diminish that or dismiss it, even if, you know, if I had to debate, you know, where they come down on it, I would be, I would be wrong on all sorts of policy areas. But like, it's a human thing. And, you know, and that's, totally understandable. That is not the groundswell that people are making it out to be. And it's interesting, you know, there are these people, I saw Nina Turner, who's like a Bernie co-chair, was on the New York panel from CNN. And my old friend, Peter Beinart, I saw him on Twitter. They were talking about how they should take this uncommitted thing on the road to the rest of the primaries. And I don't know, I haven't checked to this morning to see if this is still a live idea, but, um, I think it's a stupid idea because, first of all, as I said before, foreshadowing, most states don't have this uncommitted line on the ballot. 
So you'd have to get people to write in something um, or check some other box, right? So it can't, the uncommitted thing as a directional, organizing, self-explanatory slogan doesn't work in the future states. But moreover, given that the turnout in Michigan was so top-heavy with Arab Americans and Muslim Americans, if you then go to these other, go to Super Tuesday, let's say, and you've hyped that you're going to do this again, it seems kind of obvious to me, given the lack of time to organize, the convoluted messaging, the lack of the ease of the ballot thing with the box just to check, the numbers will be smaller in every subsequent Democratic primary. And then people will be able to say, oh, look, yeah, the Michigan thing was kind of a one-off because all of those Arabs and Muslims are there. And you reduce what is supposed to be this broad coalitional case against Israel and our policy towards Israel into a much narrower identity politics thing, which I don't think is good for Arab Americans and Muslims. I don't think it's good for critics of Israel. I don't think it's good for the country generally. But uh, the point is, it's not good politically. So I think their talking points are better coming out of Michigan if they don't try to do this again. But what do I know? I also, you know, and you should, if you want to get really deeper into this the commentary podcast yesterday, Wednesday, got, I think it was Wednesday, got into, it's the one about the Michigan stuff, got much deeper into it. And I'm sure over commentary, they got a lot of stuff on, you know, or will have stuff on all of this in more granular detail. You know, I've said this a bunch. I've said this on air a bunch. I just think that, like, the Democrats are kind of blowing this issue. The the hardcore anti-Israel position is not the majority position in this country. It is not the majority position among Democrats. And I understand that the there's a lot of committed, serious, intellectually honest, you know, not anti-Semitic people even if I think that some of their arguments lend aid and comfort to anti-Semitic, you know, ideas and trends, I don't think that is the intent of some people who, you know, are hardcore passionate, you know, like critics of Israel or, you know, sort of quasi defenders of Hamas. Like, I don't think Peter Beinart is anti-Semitic. I don't think this Andy Levin guy who is one of the organizers, he's like the nephew of Carl Levin, uh, the former senator from Michigan. He's one of the organizers, the uncommitted thing in, in, in Michigan. I don't think he's anti-Semitic. I mean, I think he's wrong, but, you know, those things are not synonymous terms. But there's a, this bubble, and you can see how thick the bubble is when you have, you know, members of the Biden administration, junior staffers doing walkouts and strikes and open letters with anonymous, you know, signatures on it, which I just still think is one of the funniest, dumbest things. And I think Biden is really surrounded by people who are sending him the signal that the Democratic coalition is falling apart and that he's going to be abandoned by Democratic voters because of this issue, when I just don't think there's a lot of evidence for that out in the real world. And, you know, the, the polling on, in support of Israel versus, you know, the Palestinian Authority, which is not Hamas, versus the polling on Hamas, which is Hamas, you know, Israel is just leaps and bounds more popular, uh, you know, and I don't mean this in a, some sort of glib, well, they're popular. I mean, kind of like there's a real affinity for Israel that isn't there for 
the people who want to destroy Israel. Um, and the thing that bothers me is the way this is talked about as if, like, I get it. The press covers what's been going on with Michigan, for instance. There's a primary coming or just passed. There's this serious opposition to Biden on the ground that was being translated into a political campaign where people are going to vote. I get it. So it's a story. It's a legitimate story. The walkouts, they're PR stunts, but they're stories. I get it. Protests on campus, anti-Semitic attacks downtown, you know, like these are their stories. And they, they do speak to something going on inside the Democratic Party and on the left. And that's all that's all fine. Right. At the same time, what doesn't get covered because it's not a it's not happening. It's the it's the other hand and the sound of one hand clapping is what is this is this implied notion that somehow Biden would be better off if he took the Rashida Tlaib position. And there's just no evidence for that. There's a political trade off here. And while it's obvious to me that Biden is putting Michigan in jeopardy, not so much because of Israel, that's not helping, but because he's unpopular and he's unpopular with the kind of swing voters and independents that delivered Michigan for him last time. And I understand why critics of Israel want to say, oh, no, this is all because of Israel. But that's that's just nonsense. And, you know, it's just not true. If he all of a sudden took the Rashida Tlaib position on all this and, you know, said no more aid to Israel, ceasefire now, yada, 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 um, mouth platitudes about genocide and resistance, he would lose more voters than he would gain. He would lose more states than he would gain. Taking the opposite position would cost him Pennsylvania. I mean, look, I think, I think John Fetterman has been nigh upon heroic in the way he's handled all this, and he could have been far more nuanced and been better off. So I salute him for how sort of, you know, out there he's been. But let's not pretend there isn't political consideration going on here, too. There are a lot of Jewish voters in the suburbs, and Jewish voters tend to vote. They're much, they're much higher propensity voters than, than Arab and Muslim voters. This is not a disparaging thing for one group or the other. You know, my view is about, you know, voting. But it's just a fact. And also, there are a lot more people in this country who are more likely to vote who are sympath more sympathetic to Israel than they are to certainly Hamas or but even the sort of the anti-Israel cause. And but because all of the attention is on where the friction is, there is this implied suggestion that somehow Biden needs to rectify this problem rather than just eat it, rather than just own it and move on and lean into it. I mean, there's so many places where if Biden would just lean into his position, he'd get more credit from the 50, 60, 70% of the public that agrees with him. But because he's always been this guy, you know, it's a cliche to say it now, but I've been saying it for a very long time. You know, he was never a centrist. He was a centrist within the Democratic Party. He figured out how to balance between the sort of DLC or Southern Dem conservative moderate Democrats and the sort of more progressive, you know, Jesse Jackson wing of the Democratic Party. That's where he was always comfortable, was triangulating between two, those two poles. He was not triangulating between, you know, right and left writ large on the American political landscape. And so he, part of the problem for him is that the Democratic Party, as we know it, a lot of the people who were once the constituency of the, the center-right Dems are now independents. 
And the Democratic Party, like the Republican Party, is top heavy with its base in terms of people who actually describe themselves as Democrats or Republicans, right? I mean, it's like if you were one of these people who was more of a swing voter, more of a centrist, less, you know, I don't really like the word extreme in this context, but less extreme, you know, less passionate, less polarized, probably better. A lot of you, like a third of the electorate, now call yourselves independents. And so the problem for that, for Biden, is he's, they're more invisible to him for his triangulating within the Democratic Party. But they're there. They are general election voters. Biden has missed so many opportunities to do sister soldier stuff that I think would have helped him. It would have made the New York Times mad. It would have made AOC mad, all that kind of stuff. But it would have gotten him more voters. I don't know if it's too late or not yet. I mean, this the confidence with which people make predictions about the upcoming election is really starting to grate on me. It is going to be late night Japanese television. It is not going to be predictable. There's going to be a lot of crazy stuff going on. All right, so Michigan for the Republicans, very quickly. I don't think it was a good night for Donald Trump, right? I mean, like South Carolina, Nikki Haley got about just, you know, a hair shy of 40%. The non-Trump vote in Iowa and New Hampshire was 40%. You know, there were other people other than Nikki and Trump in those races, but they added up to 40%. Trump has got, a, and so like in, you know, it's funny to listen to the people who, you know, who want to tout how big a deal Biden only getting 80% in Michigan is while kind of like mumbling at their shoes about the fact that Trump only got 40% in Michigan. I'm sorry, 60% in Michigan. Well, I'm I, sorry, I take that back. He only got 60% in South Carolina. He got, uh, what was it, like 73% or something like that. Nikki got high 20s. Apologize for that. I'm conflating the South Carolina punditry with the Michigan punditry. The significance of the Michigan thing is that Nikki Haley really didn't campaign in Michigan. She, you know, she made a couple of appearances, but then she moved on to Super Tuesday states. I've seen her more from Utah than I've seen her from Michigan. More than a quarter, less than a third of Republicans in Michigan were like, yeah, we don't want Trump. You know, I wrote my LA Times column about this this week. I went back and I looked at the Buchanan race in 1992. Buchanan never won a primary um, or a caucus. He got 37, just under 38% of the vote in New Hampshire. And those of you who are old like me, you'll remember that was considered a huge freaking deal. It was like this thunderclap thing about the weakness of George H.W. Bush. Now, again, George H.W. Bush was an actual incumbent. Trump is only sort of a quasi-incumbent, de facto incumbent. But even so, I've been saying it for over a year, he's running essentially like an incumbent. I've been doing this, this races between two weak incumbents thing for a very long time. You don't need to hear the argument again. But the fact that Nikki got that share of the vote without spending time or money in the state shows you that there is a slice of the GOP electorate that is just organically opposed to Donald Trump. And I don't know how big it's going to be. I don't know how many of those people are going to come home. And I think, you know, there's some interesting analysis stuff from people like Steve Kornacki and, and others that uh, throw some cold water on the idea that these independents who are voting for Nikki, these Republicans and independents who are voting for Nikki translate into general election electorate independents. I, I haven't gotten my head around all of it yet. So like it is entirely possible that the GOP, um, such as it is, because a lot of people have left the GOP because of Donald Trump, eventually rallies around 
Donald Trump. I, I don't know the answer to that. But also, neither do the people who are sure it's going to happen. Late night Japanese game shows. That's what this election is going to be like. But I think that the, the most salient point and the point I didn't get to make on um, Tuesday night is there was a lot of talk about like how to like judge, you know, how much of an issue does Joe Biden have um, with the segment of the party that voted uncommitted? How much of an issue is that for in the general election versus how much of an issue is it for for Donald Trump that even more people voted against Trump than voted against Biden. I think the thing that I, well, the thing I want to say that guess just we didn't get the opportunity to get to it is that there's a real difference between Biden's problem and Trump's. Biden's problem is over a specific issue, a specific policy issue, a specific what you want to call it, a moral issue. Fine, it's the Israel Gaza war. That's the thing. That is that drove those people to vote uncommitted. Okay, I, I think Biden could be handling Israel better, but not in the way that the people who voted uncommitted define better. But the f- simple fact is, is that Israel, uh, the Israel Gaza thing, is a thing. It's an issue separate from Biden himself. It could go away in eight months. You know, I mean, I don't think there will still be an ongoing hot war between Israel and Hamas in eight months. No matter, you know, come November, I don't think there'll be one in three months. So, like, the feelings on it are going to get less raw and passionate no matter what. He can also change how he handles it. He can change his messaging. He can change, you know, the policy. And maybe there is some way to sort of come out better off that he'll unveil in the State of the Union. Just who knows? The point is, is that it's about an issue. The issue in the Republican primary is Donald Trump. Pure and simple. There's so much nonsense out there about Nikki Haley being a warmonger and a communist and a secret Democrat and all these kinds of things. And whenever I hear people say that about her or about Liz Cheney or Mitt Romney or Mitch McConnell, it allows me to stop taking them seriously. Because what they're doing is they're just revealing their tribal derangement. The idea that somehow... Nikki Haley is a communist because she's running, because she's inconvenient to Donald Trump is just so stupid. And it's such an unserious thing. Even if you're discounting for political rhetoric and whatever, you're either crazy or you know nothing about what a communist is or a Marxist is or a fascist, you know, whatever label you're going to use. If you're going to say that, you know, Mitch McConnell is actually some sort of left-wing progressive guy. You're not saying anything significant about Mitch McConnell because you're a moron. Now, whether you're deliberately a moron or sincerely a moron or inadvertently a moron, these are interesting discussions to have with your therapist. But you're not a, it's not a serious argument. It, what it does, though, is it demonstrates the degree to which the pro-Trump faction is just simply convinced, is simply drunk on its own Kool-Aid, that anybody who is not sufficiently loyal to Donald Trump is an enemy. I've said this a million times. I said it in the column again on, you know, this week. When I was growing up, definition of a rhino. You know, we used to make jokes about rhinos all the time. It's amazing to me how many people think that they're, they're being clever and novel when they talk about rhinos. Rhinos has been a thing around since uh, at least the 80s. And before that, it was Me Too Republican. 
um, go look it up. But the people who got called rhinos were people who were squishy or moderate or, you know, whatever on taxes, guns, communism, you know, the, you know defense spending, abortion, that kind of thing. Arlen Specter was a rhino. Arlen Specter was also just an unbelievable jerk. One of the biggest Richards in American life in my lifetime. Today, you know, when, when you can call Chip Roy, when Donald, and Donald Trump did, right, because he, he supported DeSantis, when you can call Chip Roy a rhino, it has nothing to do with policy anymore. It has to do with whether or not you are a fully converted acolyte in the church of Donald Trump. When you have, you know, the Trump campaign team, I don't know if people saw this, it, in my world, it was widely noted, you know, the the absolute trash talking from Trump's campaign about the DeSantis people. And I do think this is an underappreciated story. I don't know how much it translates into numbers on the ground, but in the very online world of political consultants and social media influencers and, and, and all that, which again is often you know, shadows on a wall of a cave and doesn't have much translation into the physical world. Nikki Haley and Liz Cheney are not the only representatives of an anti-Trump faction. There are still hard feelings in Santa's world, and they are not the same kind of voters as, as, as Haley voters. Whether they punish Trump or don't come home by the general election, I don't know. I don't know how many of them are, and I think it's more unlikely, given that they were sort of more, you know, aligned to Trump in the first place. But there are a lot more people than sort of the, the sub college-educated suburbanites who like Nikki Haley who are troubled by Donald Trump. They may not say it. They may not have spokesperson in the ring right now um, because the kind of people who are like the hardcore DeSantis voters have just reconciled themselves that they got to like, you know, grin and take it for a little while. But those feelings... I suspect are out there with voters as well. And regardless, the point is simply that Trump can't change. He can't pivot to being more presidential. He was president for four years and never managed to do that. He can't help himself in terms of being a jerk by being by indulging his temper. You know, he says now I'm not really going to do retribution stuff. Why would you possibly believe him? The guy is literally incapable from I mean he he can give a speech, if his advisors tell him you have to read a speech and he agrees to read a speech, he can give a speech where he doesn't sound like the escape monkey from the cocaine study. But he cannot sustain that for days on end because people have seen him as president and they've seen him over the last four years when he wasn't president. The issue that separates Biden from the uncommitted, the anti-Israel people can go away or he can tweak. Trump can't tweak himself. He cannot become someone different at this part, part. I mean, my whole point for like almost 10 years now is that character is destiny. And nobody has demonstrated to me that I was wrong about how his character is baked in and he's not going to change. And so that issue is going to be with Trump no matter what through the general election. How much it'll matter, I don't know. Um, but there you have it. People have not liked the, my impression is people haven't been liking the solos as much lately. I don't know if it's me, well, it's obviously me, um, but I don't know if it's because the topics have been wrong or my takes have been wrong or I'm not doing the kind of things that people want, but you know, you should, you should let me know about, 
the kind of solos that you want me to do, assuming that you still want me to do them. Right, so I wrote, this is one of these G files that I really liked. I liked writing. I liked thinking about if I had my druthers, I would have done another 3000 words, 5,000 words on it. Cause I think it's a fascinating topic. If you're a subscriber to the dispatch, you have no problem reading it. Um, uh, it's about boredom. I'm not going to do the whole thing here, but I am of a mind of late that, you know, and you've seen bits and pieces of this for me over, you know, for a while now, you know, but for example, just to sort of level set what I'm talking about, you know, I think a lot of the egghead intramural fights on the right have very little to do with actual substance and more and more and have more to do with weaponizing certain ideas for certain factions of elites to supplant other factions of elites. I've just generally been of a bent of late, basically since Suicide of the West, of trying to look behind the abstract ideas and arguments at like the more core motivations of people and of groups. That's sort of intellectually where I've been at for a while now. And I bring that up because I increasingly think that like a lot of people, I mean, I've made this argument. I made this argument a little bit in liberal fascism. I made this argument in suicide of the West. Um, this argument is in uh, Fugiyama's book, the end of history that boredom is a bigger driver of historical forces than we give it credit for. One of the reasons why prehistoric times lasted as long as they did is there really wasn't a lot of space for boredom. At least that's my theory. But prosperity brings opportunities for boredom. They take the quotient of thinking about your survival out of your day-to-day -day thinking to a large extent, I mean, you might have some bad diagnosis or whatever, but for the most part, people in prosperous nations don't spend their days saying, how do I avoid dying tonight or tomorrow? Boredom. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Is a really interesting topic in philosophy. Martin Heidegger writes about it a great deal. Um, as I noted in the piece, Heidegger is credited for writing more about boredom than anybody else. And I personally think that his sort of existential boredom is one of the reasons why he joined the Nazi party because he was looking for authenticity, authenticity and meaning. He was trying to hitch his wagon to action and events that, that gave him purpose. But I also think that, you know, like Nietzsche doesn't write that much about boredom, but I think it is so implied throughout so much of his stuff, you know, from ideas of eternal return, um, to even the abyss and the last man. I mean, there's a reason why Fukuyama talks so much about 
you know, talks about boredom and Nietzsche, you know, the, the full title was the end of the history, end of history and the last man or something like that. Um, the last man being a Nietzschean concept. Anyway, I'm not going to get into the old philosophy stuff. You know, I'm going to resist that siren song. I honestly think that the, like a lot of the jackassery that we see in American life today can be explained to one extent or another by people being bored. And when I say bored, I mean bored, but I also mean unsatisfied, not fulfilled by the things that take up the hours of their day. You know, the, I don't want to get into the whole amusing ourselves to death thing, but there is something about the doom scrolling on social media or even the, you know, the game playing that we do and the 500 channels and all these kinds of things that, you know, we don't lack for distraction and we don't even lack for entertainment broadly understood, but we lack for satisfying, whole-in-your-soul-filling activity, right? This is a big part of the breakdown in institutions thing. There's people retreating to their homes, watching, you know, life through screens and all this kind of stuff. And I think our culture has told people explicitly, implicitly, and every other way that ends in L-Y, that politics is like one of the last realms of life where you can devote your time and your energies to find meaning. And I hate this message with such conviction and passion, I cannot begin to tell you. I think that is wrong. I think societies that look to politics as a way to fill the holes in their souls have profound problems. And this conception of politics as the source of meaning and purpose is dangerous and wrong and a symptom of a society that is disordered in all sorts of ways. This applies across the ideological spectrum. I think it is a sign of the sort of the secularization of society, um, the de-Christianization of society, which doesn't entire, I don't want to get started a lot of fights with this point, but like the de-Christianization of a society doesn't just mean that people stop being Christians. It means that a lot of people who call themselves Christians aren't really talking about Christianity anymore, right? I mean, a society, uh, you know, when, when Christians talk about how Donald Trump is a man of faith and how being a good Christian requires you to be in favor of Donald Trump. To me, when I have a passing understanding of Christian theology, that is the political corruption of Christianity. And it is the other side of the coin of the left's political, you know, the, the, the way politics corrupted Christianity on the left, starting in the 1960s and the mainline Protestant churches and, you know, all of that stuff where you would have, you know, guitar playing pastors who only wanted to go protest, you know, go to sane freeze protests and talk about, you know, how nuclear war was the only thing worth talking about rather than like saving souls or, 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 or doing good works and all that kind of stuff. Again, I'm talking about a caricature here, but I think it was a caricature or stereotype that had a, had a correlate in reality in the same way the Christian nationalist kind of 
you know, pastors for Trump crowd or prosperity gospel crowd and all those kinds of people, they can get caricatured a lot and they can get stereotyped a lot. And not all believing Christians or self-identified evangelicals fit that stereotype at all. But there's enough there to say that the stereotype has, you know, purchase on reality and see anything that Tim Alberta, David French, um, Russell Moore have been talking about for the last 10 years. Anyway, when I look around, I see, you know, I see these people who don't feel like they're having fulfilling lives because they're not having fulfilling lives in, in the world immediately around them. And they look to politics, a form of excitement, a form of entertainment, and a source of meaning. It's not, it doesn't have to all be one. It turns out that, you know, like, people want to be entertained when they're finding transcendence. That's why, you know, there's the ecstatic nature of crowds. And, you know, say what you will about those sort of the, 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 the snake handler, you know, congregations. They're having a good time. And so this Aaron Bushnell guy, I think it is, you know, he came from this sort of lefty, weird, Christian, quasi-cult thing. Aaron Bushnell is the guy who set himself on fire protesting Gaza um, or America's complicity in Israel's genocide in Gaza, right? And I am so disgusted by Cornell West and other people who celebrated this guy as, as courageous. I cannot begin to tell you just how horrible that is. Even if you completely agree, even if you think it, there is something really dangerous in this day and age of, you know, mimetic social media where, you know, there's a lot of social science now that says that the reason why we've had so many mass shooters is because publicity, just the mass, you know, like having your name ring out, um, having, you know, uh, you your name talked about on TV, your picture on TV for lonely, bored losers, that is such an intoxicating thing, this idea to become sort of famous in death when you're anonymous in life is a very powerful and very old human dynamic. And thankfully, it doesn't capture the, the souls of that many people, but it captures enough of them, right? And what you don't want to do is encourage that. And so celebrating this guy as a hero, martyr, you know, is grotesque to me. And I would feel that way if someone, if a pro-lifer set themselves in fire in front of an abortion clinic, I would feel that way if, you know, a pro-Ukraine person set themselves on fire in front of a Russian embassy. I'll just be honest, I would grade the wrongness of these things with some nuance, given what I think about the underlying causes. But, um, Generally speaking, I just, I, I don't think we should be encouraging this. Particularly, you know, the immediate encouragement of it when nobody knew exactly who this guy was or what, you know, was going on in his life. To just immediately assume that essentially his press release about why he did this is the truth, I just think is wildly irresponsible. And it turns out that this guy was very, 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 very online. I don't know if he was mentally ill or not, although I think, you know, pouring gasoline over yourself and setting yourself on fire live on the internet is a pretty good sign that you're not, that you're at least a little mashugana. But the idea that this was this, you know, he wants to make himself like a horse vessel, right? Who's the hero martyr of the Nazis. who was a brown shirt who died at the hands of the red shirts or whatever. This idea that like 
he was this perfectly well-adjusted guy who saw what was going on with clear, with real factual and moral clarity. It's just nonsense. You know, I, I could do this chapter in verse. That I, I had to go through a lot of, I went through a lot of his Reddit stuff and I was trying to do a deep dive on this. And I have to say, I try not to get into the liberal media bias stuff too much anymore, but it is amazing how well curated his life story is in mainstream media versus what the reality was. This guy was a deranged anarchist weirdo, ideologically. And he celebrated the terrorist attacks on, on October 7th. He um, rejected the idea that Hamas was genocidal. When Hamas says genocidal things, more often than it says things like pass the salt or um, is the bathroom this way, they say genocidal things about Jews and Israel all the freaking time. And it's just worth pointing out, like, We've had a lot of conversations about misinformation and disinformation. I've done panels on it. We've seen, you know, hand-wringing books and articles and democracy dies in darkness and yada, yada, yada for a very long time. And we had this whole debate about whether or not it is okay for journalists to say Donald Trump is lying. Can you use the L word? Can you say lie? Or should you say misleading? Or you should say, you know, it's disputed or a gazillion trillion other things. And there are, there are merits to those debates. There are opposing sides that have, have good arguments and bad on them and all that kind of stuff. But one of the reasons why this guy set himself on fire, right? And constantly hearing about how misinformation and disinformation is going to get people killed. Well, the... One of the primary reasons why he set himself on fire is that so many people, politicians and quite a few journalists um, and a whole lot of activists, routinely and glibly use the word genocide and genocidal to describe what Israel is doing. And there is just no evidence for that. Now, there is evidence, depending on how you want to interpret things, for all sorts of adjectives that that re reflect negatively on Israel, all sorts of, you know, like you, this is an analytical point. I'm not endorsing these adjectives. I'm just saying there are, there are colorable, plausible fact-based arguments to support very opinionated negative language about what Israel is doing. You know, harsh, cruel, um, barbaric, uh, uh, senseless, you can go down a very long list of all that kind of stuff, right? Because there is a lot of bombing. There have been a lot of civilians who've been killed. I personally think Hamas, the Hamas-controlled health ministry of Gaza, plays games with numbers. But whatever the real number is, whether it's exaggerated or not, the real number is still pretty horrifying. Women and children have been killed. Civilians have been killed. That's indisputable. How you adjudicate and a lot blame for that, you know, given... Hamas's policy of using human shields and and its diversion of resources, you know, it, it, it hides behind its population um, rather than protects its population. Familiar arguments, we all know about them. But genocide, even though genocide, and I've written about this a bunch of times, genocide has a really complicated history as a term. Um, and it's a very politicized definition that the UN and international law uses because the Soviets insisted to keep certain kinds of genocide out of the definition because they were guilty of those kinds of genocide. But put all that aside, 
the common sense, lingua franca, everyday usage of genocide um, or ethnic cleansing, right? Which is a slightly different word. Um, and you can make, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use it, but that is closer to a plausible term for the critics of Israel than what genocide means. But genocide is the one that has all the oomph to it and has all the emotional impact. And it's just a lie, right? First of all, Israel's been accused perennially of genocide for 70 years. And in that time, the population in the Palestine, Palestinian territories, I think, has, has expanded, I want to say fivefold, but maybe it's tenfold. I'm pretty sure it's like fivefold, right? The number of Palestinians in the area and in the world has wildly increased um, above a lot of other groups since 1948. So if, if Israelis or the Jews are so good at running the world and so powerful, and if they are so determined, if the Zionist, Zionist entity has its chief goal, the eradication of the Palestinian people, you got to explain to me why they're so freaking bad at it. Why, in fact, all the numbers are going the wrong way on the Israelis. And you also have to explain why, and, I, and again, I'm not trying to be callous about this. I mean, the, the casualty numbers are real, and I think, you know, a lot of bystander Palestinians, innocent Palestinians, have been killed in all of this. And I, you know, I tend to hold Hamas more to blame than I hold Israel to blame. But I understand, again, opinions can differ on that. But if the goal was simply the eradication of Palestinians, it wouldn't be dropping leaflets to say, get out of the area. It wouldn't be sending in aid trucks. It wouldn't be providing food. It wouldn't be providing electricity. It wouldn't be negotiating with Hamas about any of this stuff. It would be carpet bombing. It has the ability to do genocide. It has the power to do genocide. It's not doing genocide. And yet, it is very rare, you know, it's just, just sort of like one of these, you know, statements of faith that when you see people interviewed on TV, on CNN, on MSNBC, elsewhere, who are opposed to Israel, they get to just say genocide, genocide, genocide without the kind of factual pushback you would get if you said the election was stolen, right? If you go on TV and you tell, you know, the host to meet the press or whoever, the election was stolen, you're guaranteed to get pushback. If you say Israel's committing genocide in Gaza, much, much, much less likely that you'll get pushback. And the thing is, you tell people, particularly low information people who want to believe this or who already believe this, you tell people that Israel is committing genocide when you have leading politicians and activists and journalists saying it and it's not pushed back upon. You can see how it becomes this really terrifyingly searing indictment of the United States of America. Because then it becomes like, imagine if everybody in 1942 and 43 in the United States was saying on TV, well, TV is kind of a, there wasn't a lot of TV, saying on radio, saying in public, over and over and over again, we know what Hitler is doing with the Jews. They're going to try and slaughter all the Jews or they're slaughtering all the Jews. And by 44, people started saying, we know there are death camps everywhere, but we have other priorities and we're not going to deal with that right now. We have, we have to deal with other stuff first. The moral consequences of that kind of language during World War II would be, you know, transformative. You would think, my gosh, what am I, you know, you, there'd be a lot more John Brownism if you thought that America was just sort of complicit in 
um, doing nothing about the Holocaust. And the analogy, now that I think about it, is really flawed because we were at least fighting Germany at the time. Um, you know, what if it was, the better analogy is, what if everyone was going around saying, look, Stalin is putting, you know, millions of people in the gulag and is killing people, you know, in Ukraine or whatever, and we did nothing about it. Uh, we kept sending aid to Stalin. The, the low information people who believe that, or high information people for a lot of them, because I think this has more to do with sort of ideological ensorcelment than it has to do with, you know, um, the ability to sort of pay attention to politics. I mean, Cornell West is, you know, he may not be the brilliant scholar that some people think he is, but he's not a dumb guy. He's, he can read newspapers. He can read facts. He, he uses the word genocide all the time. And when you hear people that you think are your moral, you know, avatars and legitimizers and leaders talking about genocide all the time and saying that America is complicit in genocide, you are giving people, you know, a very powerful moral permission to go outside the lines. And it just, it seems to me it's a real blind spot on, on the part of a lot of people who get really sanctimonious about misinformation and disinformation, who let this genocide talking point just fly right past them all of the time. And it has consequences. And so I'm not saying that the anxiety about misinformation and disinformation is wrong. What I'm saying is that it's got to be uniformly applied or it just, it becomes a kind of, it becomes sort of like what Claudine Gay did, you know, the Har president of Harvard at those hearings. It's like, we are going to police speech for the, you know, the speech we don't like because that, that speech harms but the speech that we kind of agree with, we're going to have a policy of free speech. So you're free to call Jews and Zionists, baby killers, genocidal murderers and all that kind of stuff because we believe in an open air of tolerance and free speech. But you can't say men can't get pregnant or you can't say um, America is not a racist country because that has consequences. That kind of double standard is where, what I see when I see all these people just sort of letting the genocidal talking point fly right by. Um, okay, now I'm surely gone too long. Um, as I predicted, we got a lot of interesting email from our responses to my conversation with um, Jamie Kerchick. I think some criticisms are valid. Like I, uh, one listener made the case and he, I think he's largely, if not entirely right, that I should have pushed back on when Jamie said that boys who are, you know, adolescents who are effeminate or girls who are, um, masculine used to get called sissies or tomboys, which I think is true. But then he said, the vast majority of like the tomboys would go on to become lesbians, but now they're being told, no, they're actually men or the, the effeminate boys are told, um, you're actually a woman. And I agree entirely with Jamie that we shouldn't be telling little kids going through phases that they're actually a different sex than they really are. Um, barring some far more compelling evidence than being a little effeminate or a little masculine, you know, for a girl or a boy, you know, depending on the thing. But I don't think it's true. What I, what I, what, what this, what this listener 
pointed out in the comments is, and, and I f had this thought at the time and meant to come back to it because my wife is a proud former tomboy. She liked being, she grew up in Alaska. She wanted to hang out with her brothers. Um, she was a jock. Um, and I don't, you know, and she, she, I think she had a t-shirt made once for my daughter who did not want to wear it um, called Save the Tomboys. I don't think it's true. I don't know anything about statistics or numbers on this, but I just don't, as in my own personal experience, I've known tomboys who did not go on to become lesbians. And I've known effeminate dudes who've gone on to become entirely, at least as far as I know, heterosexual, happily married, many happily married people. The point that's, the reason why the correction is important, I think, is that um, there was a time, and it shows you how these things move and morph. As the listener pointed out, there was a time where if you called an effeminate boy, said, oh, well, that's because you're gay. That would, have, that would have been said to be unfair, right? Maybe you wouldn't have used the word gay. You would have used, uh, you know, a more of a, you know, you would have used queer or, you know, whatever. I don't, we need to run through the epithets for, uh, with ne negative epithets for, for, for homosexuality. Similarly, if you had called some 12-year-old girl who was a tomboy who liked to go find frogs in the creek and, you know, go fishing or play basketball or whatever it is. If you said, well, it's obvious that they're a lesbian, they're going to, they're a lesbian. That would have been considered a slander, harsh, unfair, mean, whatever. And it's amazing now how that would be fine. <laughs> um, and I think it's, I, anyway, I think it's, it's interesting how, how sort of people from the gay rights movement, like Jamie or Andrew Sullivan and those kinds of guys, they have this, you know, defensiveness, I don't mean that in a negative sense. I mean, this, this protectiveness about young gay people who they see themselves from when they were growing up and say they should be allowed to have the kind of upbringing that we so desperately want, wanted and fought for. And that means not necessarily telling every effeminate boy, you know, and when I say effeminate, I just... I, I, you know, there are a lot of rooms in the mansion of, of gayness. There are a lot of, you know, but you know what I'm talking about. Telling every boy who presents gay in some way that they're really a woman isn't necessarily doing them a favor and it isn't necessarily make you a more tolerant person or on the side of social justice. I get, you know, there were a bunch of people who, were, who said that Jamie was a bigot and this was the most bigoted thing they'd ever heard on this podcast and all that. I just reject that. I mean, I just don't, I, I think we got to be able to talk about some of this transgender stuff um, without assuming evil intent by people who disagree. I don't assume that everybody who is very supportive of transgenderism and the trans movement and all of its forms, I don't assume they're all evil. I know transgender people. I know, you know, I, I, you know, Deirdre McCloskey is a huge influence on me. I get along great with her. Um, she used to be Donald McCloskey and that's fine. Whatever. That's her life. I use her pronouns, whatever, but kids are different. And assuming that, you know, the trajectory and the real nature of some kid in a highly socializable moment, prone to all sorts of social, you know, contagion stuff that you know who they are to the point where you really want to create 
a system that makes it easier to surgically or chemically permanently alter them, the stakes of that are sufficiently high that you need to have an honest conversation about it without calling people bigots. And when you look at, you know, I think Jamie made this point. I've been making this point for a while. Um, I find it really kind of amazing how European and Scandinavian countries are routinely cited by progressives as more enlightened, uh, more forward thinking than we atavistic Americans. And yet you point out to them that, you know, they have these concerns and are banning some procedures for, for, for minors um, seeking transgender treatment because they're, they're bad outcomes that have come from this. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm sure there are happy outcomes too, but they're not all happy outcomes. And like given the stakes involved, it is, you know, worth looking at, at what these other progressive foreign thinking, forward thinking countries have learned from their experience and why they're doing what they're doing without saying all of this, without having to be forced into the situation to say that like Sweden is, is, is like a, you know, it's like DeSantis is Florida, but with snow or whatever, you know, and I'm not, I don't think DeSantis is Florida is the boogeyman that that implies, but you know what I mean? It's like, like these are serious countries with serious people looking at a serious issue seriously. And they came to important different conclusions. You can read about it. There's an article that talked about it on here a while back in the economist. Anyway, I, 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 the, the tie in with what I was talking about before, I think is real. There is, you know, this sort of metaphysical boredom, this desire to be transgressive, this desire to be oppositional, this desire to be part of a victimized, you know, put upon group is very strong in our culture. It's boring to be a conventional heterosexual in a lot of social milieus. And I'm not trying to dismiss, there are real serious cases where, you know, the transgender movement has the better of the argument, but there are a lot of places where they don't. Less name calling and more looking at facts and data would be useful on an issue like this. And one can fully acknowledge with humanity and grace and decency that any policy that we come up with is going to leave somebody unsatisfied, um, somebody wanting something different for deeply held reasons, and you can have sympathy for them and still say the answer is no. And that goes in both directions. All right, um, I'm done. I will let you know how Dune was. Very excited. Uh, next week, I'm around most of the week, but then um, I am off to AEI's World Forum where um, I get to hobnob with fancy people for a bit and do um, this annual talk that is the highest pressure talk I give all year um, because it always has to be new and it's always expected to be funny. It's also always expected to be like outside of the box interesting. And because I live a life where I always write these things at the last minute, it becomes a source of really prolonged anxiety for me. But we'll see how it goes. We're due for a new AMA, Ask Me Anything. We're going to get Guy in here to talk about it. Um, I got some questions for him. Like, why is he like all of a sudden like the Ed McMahon of the Matt Lewis podcast? You know, inquiring minds want to know. So send your questions, queries, comments. Um, please be civil about it to uh, the remnant at the dispatch.com or remnant at the dispatch.com. Both addresses work. And um, thanks for listening. Oh, 
And thank you to all the nice people I met at the Principal's First Conference. Uh, me, Steve, Sarah, and Mike did a live panel podcast thing. If I, if you're a subscriber, I know you can listen to it. Met a whole bunch of really nice people. It was <laughs> it was pretty funny to me how many people came up to me and said how, you know, hey, I think you really won over some hearts and minds here with, you know, some of the people who don't like you. I was like, huh. At this thing, there are a lot of people who don't like me. It was like, well, you know, there's a very bulwark heavy um, audience. And, you know, the dispatch is the is the outlier in that universe or something like that. I mean, several people said stuff like this to me. And I just think it's funny. It's also like, like for someone who gets hundreds of tweets thrown at me every day about how I'm a bulwark guy or how me and Bill Crystal meet constantly to plan things. Um, uh, I think it's funny how like in this actual universe, there's, you know, it's the Shackmanites versus the Lovestonians on this kind of stuff with the, you know, the people's front of Judea versus Judea and people's front. And, uh, I mean, look, I, I do have my disagreements with the Bulwark crowd, but like the idea that, you know, I'm sort of a controversial figure is, I just think really funny in that world. Now, if I'd spoke at CPAC, I could see a hostile audience. Maybe next, I should have talked about CPAC, you know, because I, I do think it is, it is finally being run into the ground by Matt Schlapp to the point where no one disputes it. Um, and, um, and I shouldn't put all the blame on Matt Schlapp, although he deserves a lot of blame. That board has screwed it up. The conservative, the institutions that are all part of it have screwed it up. Uh, American Conservative Union generally has screwed it up, all in the name of being, you know, lick spittles to Donald Trump and uh, being able to raise money in stupid road shows. But anyway, I'm sorry, I'm just distracting um, myself here. So that's it. Send your AMA questions. Uh, please subscribe to The Dispatch if you can. Have a wonderful weekend and uh, Mwadib! It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.